Hello and welcome to the Meta Podcast. A podcast dedicated to bringing you live recordings from Meta events covering a wide range of multidisciplinary topics converging at the intersection of innovation in the African continent. This special episode was recorded during the Stories of COVID-19 webinar hosted by Baraza Media Lab. The webinar was a discussion on life at the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, how the media can communicate better to the public about the situation, and what stories and important angles are being missed. The speakers included Dr. Marcy Correal, a medical doctor and journalist at KTN, James Smart, a broadcast journalist, and Dr. Michelle Musoga, who is a doctor at Mbagathi Hospital, the country's primary isolation unit. The conversation was moderated by Dr. Waruguru Wanjao, who is a public health expert. Hello everyone, thank you for taking time to join us. Um, just so you know who's facilitating this discussion, I'm Waruguru Wanjao, a medical doctor with public health training, some of which in health communications, um, but currently working in the policy space. Um, I'm telling you that so you know any of my biases as I moderate. Um, and today we'll be looking at COVID from a storytelling angle. Um, so we'll talk about the coverage of the pandemic in the Kenyan media, what myths have there been, what stories are there from the front line, and also what important stories and angles are being missed. Um, so I'll start with a few statistics so that it grounds us. Um, remember behind the statistics there are a few people, um, but we want to make sure that we are speaking in a Kenyan context because there's so much information flying around. And hopefully we'll get to the stories of the people behind these statistics. So the first statistic is that as of yesterday, there were 216 confirmed cases, 41 recoveries and 14 deaths in Kenya. Um, informal laborers account for 84% of the total workforce in Kenya, and they are the ones who are most likely to be affected by all the measures that have been taken. And worldwide, this is not a Kenyan statistic because luckily we don't have one as of yet officially, but there are more than 100 healthcare professionals who have died treating COVID-19. Um, I'm giving us that so I make sure that we are all following the story in the same way. Um, and also to hopefully get behind the stories of these numbers because we've been hearing a lot of numbers in the last few weeks. So for the rest of the conversation, I'll take liberty and refer to Michelle and Mercy with their first names so that she can facilitate it um, and make it more. But um, acknowledging their titles as Dr. Michelle and Dr. Musonga. So Mercy, maybe I'll start with you. Um, what has your experience been in covering this um, government press briefings? Um, especially because you sometimes have to wear dual hats, both as a journalist um, and also as a doctor. Can you walk us through that experience for the next few minutes? Um, well, I guess uh, the press briefings have been um, that one time where I find myself um, standing on a, is it a thin line between um, representing the public, representing doctors' interests, and it's, it's a delicate balancing act. Um, but what I, I, how I've married it is just to uh, say that the doctor's interest is Mwananchi's interest, in that um, a safe doctor means a safe Mwananchi. And that for me has made it um, a little bit easy 
to really consolidate um, some of the things that arise from um, everything that has been happening. And um, for me to actually uh, take that step and uh, report or go to the press briefings, um, I was seeing what was happening in the West, in the global North, uh, with the WHO press briefings, which I make sure I don't miss each and every other day. And I think my favorite has been uh, Andrew Cuomo, a New York governor. Um, seeing their kind of press briefings and being interactive, it is two-way, as opposed to ours, which was just, these are the numbers, this is it. And there was no asking about these numbers, there was no asking about these measures, what they're thinking around it. There was really not much being probed by the government. So I decided, you know, um, I have these questions. When you try to ask um, some of these government um, all, all of these things and what is happening, they give you answers round and round. So I decided, you know what, um, I'll ask in public uh, because that is the only way where um, either I will have asked, if you answer the question, we will know the answer. If you don't, all of us will see that you, you've not answered the question. Because I was like, at the end of the day, uh, all of us are at risk here. It is not that one thing where a, a small group of people uh, will be affected and another will be left behind. So for me, really, it was, these are the questions that we are raising as Wananchi, as doctors, as different quarters. So I'm going to ask in public. And whoever answers it and answers it satisfactorily, we are okay. If not, at least we'll know that we are thinking about this. And I'm glad to say that um, at least we've seen a bit of change. Uh, some of the things that we've asked, people realize now that people are actually listening and they'll query and they will, they, they will keep track of what is happening. Um, the other thing now with that, what happened with after that press briefing is every day between 12 and 2 p.m., uh, I think that's the busiest time for my phone, my emails and times, my Twitter account, because I'm very active on Twitter, where everyone is like, you know, uh, go and ask Waziri this, go and ask the CS this. Uh, we are thinking about this. Some, some questions are very personal. You cannot ask in public. But from that, I have been able to collect a lot of feedback from the public about the things that they, they, they just need answers to. Uh, the things that are bothering them, the uncertainties that they have about the coronavirus. And um, it's been a learning, a learning point in terms of realizing that, yes, one, we can actually um, ask relevant questions to authorities. Two, that um, I'm, I'm, I'm in a position, um, I, I call it I'm in a privileged position, uh, where being a doctor, at the same time, I'm a journalist with access uh, to government officials, especially in a public press briefing like that, I'm in a privileged position and therefore I should use it for the benefit of the public. That we are there for the public and this title and the honor of being the fourth estate uh, puts me in a different place that uh, should be used for the public. And the other one is that it's, it's been a learning curve where I get story ideas, where I've been able to find out what's happening on the ground with the COVID-19 response with the government, because now people are like, uh, 
for example, like the PPE issue, which has been um, a very thorny one, um, people are like, you know, you asked, but this has not happened. This A, B, C, and D, but this has not happened. So it's been able to give me a very good loop and feedback mechanism that well has has uh, quite frankly uh, improved my knowledge of what is happening on the ground, both from a government perspective to a managed perspective. So I find myself from just covering the press briefings that I'm in a position where, um, yeah, I I can do a lot um, both up to government and. To Mwananchi. And at the end of the day, I, I always have to remind myself that, you know, we are here for the public. It's, it's a public interest story. It is not about health. It is not about economy or sports. It is people. And as you said rightly, uh, these statistics, you, you will hear uh, 216 cases, so many recoveries. But you see, these are just numbers when they are being announced. But at the end of the day, it is people who went through a certain experience. And so I, it's, it's always a reminder that, you know, all numbers, but at the end of the day, there are people who must be respected for people. So it's been, it's been a good experience. It's been a good experience. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing. And I'm sure we all appreciate the fact that you're making it a feedback loop, um, moving it from the people to the government and back, and also wearing that public health interest. You also spoke about getting stories from frontline workers. So maybe this is a great time to switch to Michelle. And maybe, Michelle, you can start by sharing with us what your role is in Bagathi, um, your current responsibility, and what activities you're undertaking um, as, the doctor, as a doctor in Bagathi Hospital. Okay, so um, there's Mbagathi, the main hospital, the usual old um, hospital, and then there is the infectious disease side. So where we are quarantining people is the infectious disease unit. It's the isolation unit. And then now there's still the main hospital where things still kind of run. So what we've done is we've tried to kind of separate the functions so that we make sure that at least we are still seeing the emergency cases, the critical care um, cases, because, you know, we've asked ourselves if we send all the patients away, then where are they going to go? Because Mbagathi is where they go and they need help. So in this side of Mbagathi, Hospital. I am the team lead for Corona for the hospital. That means um, I basically oversee all Corona-related issues. That means I have to make sure that um, we have a response team that is running well. We have to take care of the. We have to make sure we have a hospital preparedness checklist that runs coherently with the WHO checklist so that we make sure we have everything in place. And all this will include everything from, like I said, the screening and the triage, um, which will include isolation and separation of patients um, who we sent for testing. It will include protection of the healthcare worker, then putting in place a contingency plan in case that things get out of hand, in case things blow up, we need a contingency plan to see, okay, this is how we will manage ABCD. So that's currently what we are doing at Mbagathi. And of course, there's the other side where now we uh, manage the inpatients. So our inpatients with COVID-19, they're divided into two. There are those who we have um, isolated, but they're yet to be tested or they have been tested and they're waiting for their test results. And then 
once you're confirmed, we move you to another side, another wing, where now we have our confirmed patients, where now we manage you, we manage your symptoms, we give you your medication, and then we keep retesting you until you turn negative. When you do, we discharge you. Thanks. Um, I'd like to maybe make it a bit more personal. And I'm, I yeah. think it's very useful for people to understand what's happening in Bagathi in general. Yeah. But for you during this COVID, what has, yeah. are there any changes that have um, been affected in your day-to-day work? And what does a day, yeah. what does a day in COVID look like you, look for you as a healthcare worker? Okay, so as healthcare workers, um, you have to understand when it first happened, it was, yes, scary, but also a challenge because, you know, we'd been reading about it, um, we've done all the research, but you kind of feel like it's far. But when it came home, it was like, okay, guys, it's here and we have to act fast. So that was a bit of a scare for everybody. So first we had to do training and sensitization for all the staff because there were people, a lot of staff was just like, I want nothing to do with it. I'm not going to die. I'm out. So we had to like calm everyone down, train them, sensitize them. So that was a whole thing. Get people on board who actually want to work in the COVID because there are people who categorically said, they are not interested and they don't want to and you can't really force someone and then so when we got that and then now we got our teams now we started the work but again because we are already understaffed even before the COVID and then now we have COVID that comes into place then we cut down on staff because there are those staff who are older elderly we can't expose them they're the staff who have comorbids they have diabetes hypertension cancer we can't expose those staff so the number of people working in the IDU are very limited so um, what we are currently doing there are actually two shifts within the IDU there are two shifts at run so you do your 12 hours 12 hours but which can be very hectic because i can tell you when you put on your full ppe and you go and see every single patient even staying like an hour or two in that ppe you literally feel like you're going to pass out yeah but yeah that's what the day looks like so you wake up in the morning leave the house go um get your notes for yesterday get an update and then you now prepare your team because the best thing to do is to enter as a team so that we also preserve the amount of PPE. So we put on our PPEs and then we, you enter as a team, you go do your ward round, you see every single patient, you come back, you document until the next time when you have to do it all over again. Um, that is on that side. And then on this other side, in matters of preparedness, same thing, you come you come in the morning, um, you check with the night team, the people who've been screening the people, how many people they screened out of the people they screened, how many people they sent for isolation and then, or how many people they sent for testing, see the outstanding factors, restore their PPE that they used overnight and then start with a fresh team that will be screening through those hours. So for most of us, the biggest care has been to our families because we are very, we are happy and willing to stand in the gap because I keep telling guys it's like we are at a war and now we are the soldiers. So this is our time to fight. But we are like, are we carrying this disease back to our children? Are we exposing our um, mothers at home, our fathers? And even more than that, just the general population, because when we leave that hospital, us being exposed, you go back into the society. So a lot of things like that. And we've had to be separated more than everybody else and distance from people. So that has also been kind, a lot of a psychological play for us. But yeah, that's how our days look like. 
Yeah, thank, thank you for sharing with us. Even I didn't know all the details of how the day looks of people <laughs> like on the front, front line yeah. because it's a new thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure everyone appreciates understanding what, what it means for you guys. And we'll come back to some of the things, things that you've highlighted um, as we go through the, the, the questions. And that would move me to the next question for James. What was your inspiration for the stories you recently had on, online on Twitter? about how this is affecting the general population, you know, how it's of the actual effects of the economic situation, especially in informal workers. What was your inspiration for that? Uh, thanks. Our professional always has these two distinct pictures, uh, meaning you have to have this strength to go out and uh, ask the hard questions, uh, put those who are in authority, um, you know, into a place whereby they need to answer those questions and provide what they're supposed to provide. Uh, and then on the other hand, there's this other soft belly that journalism must have. Journalism at this point is to go almost in the opposite direction and start uh, putting a portrait, a profile of Kenyans um, as we know it and sort of give it a face and say, this is a person, uh, they own a small eatery, they work in this small place, and this is what has happened to them because of COVID-19. They have reduced, uh, you know, their intake of, you know, sort of money. They have reduced, you know, income. This is what's happening to them currently. Then this is a community together. These stories, you know, sort of come together and shape the community. Uh, for instance, what was very clear for me when uh, I think it was last week, when all sort of the papers were saying, well, lock us down, you know, uh, Kenyans are demanding to be locked down. Yeah, 68, 70% of, of, or so. And I looked at all my notes. I had spoken to at least by that time 117 people. None of them, none of them told me lock us down. None of them said this is when, you know, government should, you know, move in with boots and all those things and lock us down because the situation is different and, you know, it, it does not uh, bring uh, all of us into the same space. We don't experience this pandemic the same way. So what we have uh, going to do and what you're going to do more is uh, one profile and do portraits of more people in vulnerable communities, uh, more frontline workers like doctors and that sort of thing. Journalism is an act of power, an excess of power in many ways. You know, the people that you quote every day end up uh, talking to us, end up telling us this is the thing, this is how you fix things, okay? Uh, and then because we keep giving them the airtime and they should have the airtime, they end up exercising power of us because all of a sudden they're the ones who know the pandemic better and our voices in the end or voices of everyone else, if not brought in at the same time, they kind of can get excluded. So for me, this is just, you know, and I hope other journalists as well who are doing the kind of work that we want to do is as much as we can, let's uh, bring more portraits of Kenyans into this uh, and, and let's make sure that as we deal with this pandemic, it is not another exercise of removing or disempowering other sectors and other people who cannot or don't have the same access uh, to sort of journalism. They don't have the same access to the press. So we should, you know, sort of try find those balance, you know, from what we do in the front line and also what we do in the back line, if you, if you like. Yeah, thanks. I know the, the Twitter thread for me really brought it home. Um, before I saw your Twitter thread, I hadn't, like, hadn't had any personal information on how this is affecting our people in other settings. So we appreciate that and we are happy to hear that you'll continue doing that. But now we'll go back to, to Mercy. And the question for you is, 
the information that's being shared, do you think it's being shared in a translatable way? Um, the one that's coming from the government, is it being shared in a way that's enabling you to be, quote unquote, a storyteller for the general public? Um, I, I think in, initially um, the information, like if you realize the press briefings for me was, um, was just figures being dropped, huh? Uh, like the CS would, uh, I, I usually, I even have mastered when to take my pen because he will talk about something, measures, and then he'll say, fellow Kenyans, in the last 24 hours, then you know figures are coming. So, and then usually it's like, uh, we've tested so many people, so many have turned positive, these are travelers. Or, so for me, it was, not useful information because we needed to know um, what is the age group of these people? What is the disease severity? Um, what are your admission criteria? What is your case definitions? Has it changed? What is the, the, the spread or what, what is the extent of the contacts? How far are the contacts? So for me, this, this was information that could now make a story. But just like, okay, so 20 people, we have added 20 more people, so what? So for me, initially, the, the figures were not um, useful. And before, before now, they started you know, like giving us an age breakdown and whatnot. Um, I had to now go behind the scenes and look for somebody with that data and ask for that data, look at it so that now we know the extent of the disease and whatnot, which was a lot more work. So I was like, by the way, why are we struggling? Yet this is information that could be public. So as we had said earlier, these figures and statistics are just numbers if, if they don't have any context behind it. Two, the other thing that um, for me, why initially the numbers were not useful um, is uh, in, in one of the WHO briefings, the director general was saying, uh, every positive test is a story because who is this person? How did they get it? Who did they meet? Where do they live? Where are they? How is the situation? So you can look at every positive. Now we have 216 everyone there is a story that could tell um one the government what to do which is information that i hope they have and they've been using and two it could tell the public uh what to what to do also how to prepare how to react how to take in the measures because if you now don't explain all this context then behavior change is, is going to be different because you can't scare people into changing what they are used to doing a, a good example is uh, the mask for example uh people are told wear a mask or we'll fine you twenty thousand. so what have people done picked masks uh, I see some people with something like an N95, some are those ones for dust in industrial uh, places, and people just wear them on their forehead, on their chin, some it's hanging on the chest, because anyway, we've been told to wear a mask. We haven't been told why and how and what are the risks and all of these things. So f for me, those statistics and figures should, have, should be an opportunity for government to explain some of the reactions. Yeah, and the magnitude of the reactions, the escalations, the de-escalations. So, yeah, the the figures initially were not useful, as I said, very useful. But 
with time now we are starting to to change and i'm glad that now even smart is here that we are moving to now telling people stories when you talk about healthcare workers for example at risk i would want to talk to michelle to give her story to the public and show people that you know this is real i'm the one who lives this risk every day i'm the one who is as scared as you are this is why we are seeing a b c and d so it's it, it's time to translate those many statistics into actual stories yeah thank you thank you for being there to be to first catch the statistics and ask the government the hard questions and then translate them to stories and thinking of, speaking of government policies and stories um james my next question to you was when you were on the ground how did people understand the larger policies so the larger economic policies and how and how they're going to affect them how long they're going to stay are they accepting these policies do they understand why they have bad business for something they can't see and is affecting only 200 people now um, what was put us in their shoes and how they are taking these policies yeah, uh, i think generally people want to do good and be good citizens generally that that is you know so you tell people to you know stay home let's just want to stay home you know everyone say if you there's hot hot kitchens uh, in madare for instance and you're able to access the food whatever we'll stay home so people want to follow these instructions uh, but i'll just make one sort of observation uh, when i was in korogosha for instance in the market and um, the whole day and in the afternoon there are all these briefing from the cs and the issue of lockdown that is when they announced this you know task to don lockdown uh, and i observed something very interesting the reaction for the people was not what government was announcing it was the opportunity that it has given authorities to sort of levy a new tax and harass people right so all of a sudden it switched into oh now we have to leave uh, like the women I was talking to at that time were in the fish market they had to leave at 3 uh so that they can go to their stages by 4 then take cuz it take about two connecting buses to go to wherever they're coming from so that they don't encounter police for instance you know uh so it's not that yeah we we have to social distance we have to make sure that you know we wash our hands and you know we do not you know pass the virus along it is this authority and they've said this and this has real consequences on how the authorities my direct relation to government which will be the chiefs and the police and whatever and what they will do to me uh, and so that was sort of like a sad you know sort of thing to observe because you want and and we i think we've perfected this that everyone who speak from government has this thing of threatening people you know we will arrest you you know we will do this when this happens we will prosecute you and those that kind of communication i don't i'm not sure it has worked it doesn't work what it does it gives you know the police and everyone else another avenue to harass people and tax people and then so instead of have this behavioral change where we can all deal with this virus and the problem together because we should be in it together uh, it becomes this contrast where uh, we have to do things because you're saying this and we fa- will find ways to avoid it okay and and so this avoidance is in many ways i think that will be the problem for Michelle and you know the frontline workers in the end because uh, I've never I'm I'm doing things because I'm not I'm not doing it out of willingly I'm doing it because I'm trying to avoid authority and to avoid power 
but generally, these the jerrycans in all the markets. Uh, people are washing their hands uh, as often as possible. Uh, it was not there before. Uh, people are, you know, are buying sanitizers. Uh, that that was not there before because it has direct consequences to the businesses that they're doing. There's there's a general compliance to the the communication. I would say, you know, of of what is needed to be done. The problem comes with how our society and our economy dictates. You know, we cannot social distance in a house. A typical house in Madare has the very least has four children and a father and a mother. Okay, and it is fifty by fifty feet. How do you social distance in in that kind of a scenario? The kids have to go out every every day and play and run around and move around. Uh, the parents have to figure out how to go and find food every day. So those realities make it impossible for these communities to comply with certain things. However, I think, from what I've observed, I think everyone really knows what they're supposed to do. Everyone wants to, to do the right thing uh, because it has direct impact on not only their lives, but the economy as we speak currently. One more thing I'll say is that uh, one community that we profiled and the story that I'm doing next is their problem has been water for the longest. And they've documented, said, since independence, we've never had piped water here. So, you know, uh, of course, it is whole issue of cartels, uh, the city council, and that sort of thing. So all of a sudden, what has happened is uh, the goodwill has brought jerrycans to them. And they are this feeling that once corona ends, the jerrycans disappear as well, you know. So why are we doing, what are we doing this for? How are we doing this for who? So that is it, is it the jerrycans are there to sort our lives so that in the end we sort out our water problem or it is there because it's a projected fear of someone else and this is either government or the middle class. So they send us jerrycans. Uh, that's one of the quotes that I had was they sent us jerrycans so that we don't infect all of you instead of sorting our problem which has been water since independence. So we have to as we, you know, sort of come up with solutions, um, also use this time and this opportunity and this pandemic to deal with systemic problems, uh, institutional problems, uh, because they are a barrier in many ways on how our society can come together and deal with this pandemic. Uh, being, bearing in mind that this pandemic is not sort of a weekly or a monthly, you know, who knows how long we, we, we're going to be with it. So perhaps as we figure out how to tell these many stories, uh, from where we are, it's an opportunity for us to deal with all these problems at a go at the same time because it has real effects to real people and how they live every day. Yeah, thanks for that perspective. Um, it seems the security thing is a big issue, that the security story around the measures being enforced is not being told. Um, or being acknowledged by the people who are not being directly affected. So thank you for, thanks for highlighting that. And then we'll move to Michelle, um, and I'll now move to audience questions. Um, and so I'll move to the question from Joy on how are frontline health workers being uh, supported with their mental health? Um, are you getting any support? Especially because, as James said, this might be a marathon and not a sprint. Um, so we'd just like to know how you're doing it personally or any support that you have um, institutionally. Okay, we've actually been talking about that like amongst ourselves because, um, yes, people are getting anxiety. 
the loneliness, everything just sometimes feel like it's crashing in. So there's a hotline that we have that you can call, but sometimes people say that feels so impersonal. So what we are trying to do, we try to at least talk to each other, encourage each other like, okay, me, I went through this today or today I'm not feeling so strong or today I feel like I miss my people. I just want to go see my baby. So we've formed like groups where we can just talk to each other, share stories, encourage each other and move on. But yes, we do need a mental health plan. That one we acknowledge because we are like, by the time this is done, <laughs> we'll need a lot of um, mental health care for the healthcare worker. So we need, we, we are, we've been trying to establish a contingency plan for, okay, and when we need to talk to someone, who do we go talk to and how is all that facilitated? As of now, there's not really a clear plan in place. You know, it's kind of just like, you guys do this and yeah. But amongst ourselves, we are trying. Yeah, I know doctors are not very good at taking care of themselves. Yeah. But this is, yeah. This, is the one time, <laughs> this is the one time we need you guys who are on the front line, especially the ones who are trained to do this. Yeah. You're a valuable resource to us. So to the storytellers out here, um, anyone who's looking for a story, I think the mental health of the frontline workers is one that yeah. certainly could be highlighted because a lot of the time how these things get move on, moved on and actioned is through stories, especially those that are more human. So yeah. that's kind of a, a, a bone I'm throwing to the storytellers on the call um, mm. on something that needs to be highlighted. Okay, James. Hello. <laughs> So I, I just wanted guess. to I, I just wanted to say that I'm I, I'm going to call Michelle after this and we figure out how to do an ethnography of what they're going through. I'm sure okay. Marcy would be happy to collaborate on that kind of a story. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. excellent. Down because actually, my story for tomorrow is on uh, mental health, so I can add this angle of the healthcare workers that uh, who is taking care of our healthcare workers so that they can take care of us as okay, maybe I'm biased having been, okay, being a doctor, but for me, the health of the healthcare worker is actually more important than that of the public because if everything crashes, where do you run to? You'll run to this guy. So for me, they rank up there first, then we can follow in later on. So yeah, so Michelle... We, we will continue with this conversation. We'll be talking. <laughs> okay. Um, and Marcy, as you're talking, maybe we can then move to you. And one of the, another question from the audience is, how do you have insight on how can, counties have prepared to deal with this pandemic? Is there a way that prepared, we can know the preparedness level for each county? Um, and how can citizens, there are many questions, but I'm going to talk through them. Um, and how can citizens get more accountable to our county reps to ensure resources are well managed. So that's from Margaret Geventi. I think I'd summarize it as what's happening at the counties and how can we keep counties more accountable because those are people who we, we are not hearing from directly as opposed to the central government. Um, I think for me, counties is one of those underreported stories. Um, how counties have been able to prepare for this. I think we have been focusing on uh, Michelle and team in Bagathi, Kenyatta, I don't know, KU, then you're looking at the private facilities. Um, but we forget that most people, and especially the vulnerable, are in the counties. So um, my honest assessment, having, uh, having talked to uh, people in the counties, uh, people in the county government, is that our counties are, are not prepared. Uh, the long and short of it. 
they are not at the state where you would comfortably say that um, they can handle even 50% of what will come to them. You only see that a few counties have tried to do something. And I think uh, Mombasa is the one county which seems to have been really moving at pace. Um, so counties for me are, are still lagging behind quite a lot. Uh, probably tells a lot about um, our healthcare system and how we are structured and how the devolved units are. It tells a lot about the kind of leadership that we have at the counties. And since this whole COVID started, um, my summary has been that our leadership, everyone in leadership, be it in county government, national government, uh, be it the parliamentarians, the politicians, uh, find themselves in a situation they are not used to, where they actually have to offer services to Mananchi that is time-barred. Like if you need PPEs within one week, you cannot come after one week and say we are still planning. If you need to have an isolation center set up, you cannot come uh, two weeks later and say, you know, uh, we are still having meetings, we are still consulting. This is not that chance. So I think they find themselves in a situation where they actually have to serve Gwanaichi and people are not used to that. And our responsibility as the end users, as the taxpayers, is to ask these guys what they are doing in offices. They cannot say they are doing physical distancing, yet technology has afforded us a chance to have meetings like this and you move things. You cannot start saying uh, we are waiting for the national government and whatnot because people have cut down a lot on budgets to channel it towards this preparedness. So all of these excuses, in my opinion now, do not have, do not have any place we cannot be working the same way we've been used to working where things fall a certain long convoluted and bureaucratic channel when actually people's lives are at risk. And I look at it like this, um, and allow me to give the example of, the, of James Oyuki, the guy, the man who died in CIA. Um, he showed up in a health facility in, in CIA, somewhere in Kuala. Uh, before this, uh, at least I have been to that place, but I'm sure a good number of Kenyans do not, do not even know where Okwala is or the facility where he went. But he showed up in that health facility and he was attended to. And from that showing up in that health facility, a good 45 people are now in quarantine. I think out of in the facility itself, they should have been about, um, can't find my notes here, but there should be about nine, yeah, nine healthcare workers were exposed just because he showed up in the facility. Now, how many more James Oyugis are in this country that they would move from Nairobi to Mandera to Asingishu? How many more are there that will just show up and expose healthcare workers? how many healthcare workers can we afford to put on quarantine for 14 days? We are running short. So if Michelle today is um, at her house for the next 14 days, who takes up her slot? Michelle did not get trained over two hours. It, it has taken time. First from being psychologically prepared, then being physically prepared and doing a bit of work here and there. So how many Michelle's can you have if all your healthcare workers are in quarantine? So these are some of the things that for me, counties have not seen or they have not realized. They're still working in the old 
do is where you have meetings and then you hold another meeting to review minutes of the previous meeting. <laughs> Things are not moving. So this, for me, is an opportunity to demand change and to hold these people to account because they are there to serve us. So for me, uh, uh, this was uh, in a man of the people. We have climbed the Iroko tree as uh, citizens. It's time to come down with as much firewood as we can because this COVID presents us an opportunity to sort out our healthcare system. Even if it's 75%, that will be good enough. So the counties need to step up and we in the counties need to hold them accountable. Not everyone can afford to come from Kakamega to Nairobi. We need to get our healthcare services where we are. Thanks, Masi. I'll take that as a rallying call, again, for the storytellers on the, um, on the call that there's a much bigger story of the other 46 counties. And if we can get those stories more in the media, if this can be the time for our leaders to know that they need to be held accountable, they need to be able to be responsive actually provide services. Um, that would be very good. And I think we need people on the ground. We can't travel for now to the counties, but as soon as we can, or if we can read virtually, that would be great so that we can get those stories out there, especially of the healthcare system, because it's a great time to highlight it since everyone is focused there. Another question from the audience is from FSI Pala. Um, and this one I'll direct to James. Um, so he asks, or she asks, um, they are suggesting a story on other people in the healthcare system, like the cleaning and catering staff, because they are key to this. Um, and also other people like Uganda has done a reported story on truck drivers. And I'd twist that question and ask James, if you could pick three parts of society who you think, whose story is under told, but who are really suffering from this. And it has to be three. What? three sec or parts and sectors of society would you choose <laughs> to tell a story on? Uh, I, I, I have like 10. I was, I was going to go for 10, but anyway, three. Uh, so there's a story about how we eat the food chain in, in this country. And, and it's a very intricate and a very complex thing. You know? So you have two levels of it. You have uh, the ones that come straight from you know, the farms uh, and, you know, put in a proper labeled truck and then find its way in Supermarket X. And then, you know, a couple of you people walk into Supermarket Y and buy those things and you walk out. Uh, that is a very straight line. You know, they know uh, from the sort of like the farm to fork is, you know, sort of determined. And it is not really, really interrupted as we speak today. However, there's 70% of how we eat, which is your mamboga, uh, the everyday, and so for instance, say bananas coming from Meru, they used to have two roadblocks uh, before this uh, COVID-19 for any truck that would pass. Uh, two recognized roadblocks, let me say that. As of last week, they've increased to six roadblocks. So what that has done is it has increased the cost of getting the bananas from Meru to Marikiti, Nairobi. Um, and getting to Marikiti is the first place, but then it's sort of like a center place for it to be distributed uh, into different places. So the story that I think one I would like to tell, other than Michelle's story, which is number one, A1, we've agreed, we have to, <laughs> to tell the stories of healthcare workers and frontline workers because it's important, and, and I agree with Masi. They, they, 
it's sort of like that thing we talk about, the weakest link in the chain. If we are unable to secure how our frontline workers get, you know, PPEs and government really does what he says does to the frontline, you know, frontline workers, then all of us are exposed, all of us are weak at the end. We don't have no hospitals to go through and that sort of thing. So I would say healthcare workers, number one. Number two is your Mamboga. How she gets, uh, you know, her nyanya and the greens, whatever it is, however she gets it. Uh, because that's a very, it's an ecosystem that sustains this uh, middle class, if you like. Uh, that's a story I'd like to tell. Uh, and the third story is the truck drivers. Uh, as uh, he or she correctly points out, they have to go through so many loops to get things into the city. Uh, drive at night when there's curfew, uh, being harassed uh, every, by every opportunity, by any authority. You know, someone, one truck driver told me they're being asked for uh, certificate, a health certificate from Mugabe or something of that sort. Uh, and who knows what that is? You know, they are told you should have it. You know, so they're walking around asking, what is this thing? Are we supposed to be going to Mugabe every, every week to be tested that we are, you know, COVID negative so that we can drive the trucks and that sort of thing? So they are the people who sustain how we, how we work, how we eat. Uh, and, and they are with people we don't think about those people, are, for me, are very central because in many ways, we have to think of this in two ways. Right now, we are in, in, a, in a crisis in a way, uh, but what to do in this crisis will form how we come out, you know, during the recovery period. So if we don't take care of the things that make us work today, the things that make this country tick, then in the recovery, it might be worse because then we wouldn't have systems, we wouldn't have the trusted people, the shopkeepers, the mambogas, and the things that make this country work and make us move, you know, from point A to point B, people that we really don't think about. Uh, so for me, it has been sort of like a revelation, if you like, of um, what we think are essential workers. You know, uh, it's, it's important to think that lawyers are good and they're supposed to be essential workers, but I will vote for my mamboga and my truck driver this time as essential workers uh, more than anything else. Add them to the doctor's list. Yeah, thanks for that. I think we've all realized how important the grocer, the person, the teller, the supermarket is to this. Um, I think they were just invisible to all of us. And so we'll certainly be on the lookout if those come to fruition, just to understand their stories and from a more human angle, you know, what time do they need to wake up to be selling for us our fruits at 7 a.m.? We don't think about that. Um, enough. So thank you for highlighting those to us. We'll be on the lookout to see if they if they come to fruition. Um, Michelle, a question for you from the audience um, um, from Consumer Grassroots is first, thank you for the work that you've done um, and putting your lives on stake to keep Kenya safe. Um, I think them and all of us appreciate that. And their particular question is, are there healthcare workers who are in quarantine and are there healthcare workers who have tested positive? Yes, there are healthcare workers who are in quarantine. There are doctors who've tested positive. There are clinical officers who've tested positive. There are nurses who've tested positive. So they're currently in quarantine, but I can report that they're doing well. They have mild to moderate symptoms. So we are monitoring them and we'll, we are still testing. And we have also expanded the testing for the healthcare workers. So a lot of healthcare workers are getting tested today, in fact. After this, I need to go get tested. 
so maybe we will find even more but yes they are there okay thanks for sharing that and are they being taken care of do they go to isolation um in the same place or do they have a particular place for quarantine um and what support do they get from the institution okay so at least uh, the government has been i don't know if i can say gracious but um the government has identified a wing in Kenyatta Hospital where the healthcare workers will be admitted and i think it's about 80 bed capacity and then there's another one in KU where healthcare workers can be admitted um so far the questions for the healthcare worker has been that um some of them don't have medical insurance like in general so they're like what happens to them but the bigger question is where do the families go if a family member tests positive because fine even if you take care about where i am going to stay but where does my mother stay where does my daughter stay so that's the thing we are trying to iron out this week okay thanks and i think you've also yeah. highlighted another group mm-hmm. yeah? the families yeah. of the healthcare workers what effects i know there was something on twitter um or on social media i saw where a healthcare worker goes home and his kid runs to him and then he can't hug his kids yeah, so, yeah that's to yeah. the storytellers i keep on kind of talking to the storytellers because this this is a conversation for storytellers another story over yeah. there is the families of the healthcare workers the fear they have when their people go out the risk of infection they have before the healthcare worker is tested um and just how much they are having to to deal with it um so there you go in case you are here for inspiration for stories i think we've created um we've been able to highlight enough of those and now we have a few more minutes um so in those five minutes i'll ask each of you to take a minute of of those five minutes um and so to the three of you is as we wrap this up are there from your different perspectives so from a journalist perspective who's doing the hardcore facts from a journalist perspective who's doing the human story and from a healthcare worker perspective are there stories that are not being shown so in terms of storytelling the two questions are what should continue to be done and what should be done differently so we can start with messy okay Um I think one I quickly want to throw it back to my medical colleagues Michelle and team and yourself um that I find doctors nurses clinical officers they've been media shy like some that we we talk to about what they are going through they'll talk to you but when you want to go public with this they are media shy then when I compare it to what I'm seeing in the west as long as people cannot see this is michelle this is marcy this is i don't know james john whoever it's difficult for them to conceptualize and start seeing that actually these are people with families with cannot hug because they've come from isolation so i quickly want to just throw it back to the healthcare workers at the front line that we need to see you we need to know you we need to be in your shoes as a public uh because me saying is one thing you saying it from your perspective is another one uh, and it's something that now the public will 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 understand will get to understand more so my colleagues uh, out there please stop being media shy we are all here on the same boat to help all of us and uh, now we should continue what we should continue doing is highlighting the hard facts the hard truths that are there we should continue um 
uh, holding governments into a, the government into account, the county governments, that needs to continue. What I think needs to change is our storytelling to start telling stories of people. Uh, people who are collateral damage from uh, COVID-19, that is our mothers who are pregnant, people in need of um, blood transfusion, for example, people undergoing cancer care, dialysis, uh, people who've had transplants, whose surgeries have been postponed because of the situation. So we need to start telling all those other stories because it is not, COVID will come and go but mothers will still need to deliver. Cancer is still here with us. Diabetes is still here with us. So I think for me, we need to start shifting, to start talking about those other stories because for me, that's the underreported part. That is where uh, most Kenyans are suffering, apart from obviously the stories that uh, James is talking about. But we need to now even just train our focus into all of that because life is still continuing. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for that perspective. James, what should we continue doing? What should we do differently? Um, well, as someone who does not have the title of doctor in front of my name in this panel, uh, <laughs> I think I have a, sort of like a different view, but pretty much the same. I think it's a time for us to expand the idea of journalism uh, in this country. We know for sure, for certain, that scientists doctors, medics, and those, they know how to fight the virus. They know what to do to, to, to deal with this virus. What we know for certain is politicians and everyone else, they don't. And it's sort of like a radical idea, but can we stop quoting politicians during this time and start quoting more doctors, more scientists, uh, and start creating this relationship between the public and the scientists? Uh, that relationship doesn't have to be mediated by politicians, I think, uh, because we are fighting a virus. We are not fighting a political party. We are not fighting, you know, a different political ideology. And, and that, for me, I think would be something that I'd like to see more from uh, colleagues who have to tell stories every single day uh, so that we separate fact from fiction every single day uh, and, and make sure that we are telling what the medics are telling us, what scientists are telling us, what we should do and, and how we should do it and separate it very far from what politician X thinks we should do because politicians at every instance, they are trying to exercise power over us. They are trying to find ways on how to increase their political base, find ways on how to you know, make it about them more than what's about us. Um, having said that, uh, I think that we should put profiles of more Kenyans you know, and let Kenyans see other Kenyans uh, helping each other. Let's see more Kenyans uh, in different places we're in. And you mentioned the counties and all those places. Uh, there are many ways to tell stories. Uh, let's, at this time, have a different idea of what journalism is. That our journalism should not be about politicians and about elections and about constant political tough. Our journalism should be about us. I think we can do it at this time. So I want to see more of that. Uh, I will do my bit to make sure that we have more profiles of more Kenyans uh, told out there. Uh, and really, if we can, uh, avoid politicians. Yeah, we, we appreciate your bit. It certainly has humanized the story. 
Um, and for Michelle, even though we are one minute past time, if you could tell us in a really short time. So from my perspective, kudos to the stories that are being told from the casual laborer and from the people who are the less fortunate people. But what we need to do more is have more impact in terms of trying to simplify the message of COVID-19. As we go to tell the stories, I think we should like try to ask, what do you think Corona is? Just to make sure that they understand it. We need to simplify it in a way that I feel that when you have the knowledge, then number one, you stop fearing. And then number two, like Masi had earlier on said, if you come from a point of knowledge, then you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, as opposed to I'll be arrested or it's wrong. You need to understand, okay, why? What's, what actually is this Corona? So I think together with Ministry of Health and Healthcare Workers, we need to find a way to simplify that message to the general public of what Corona is, what impacts, what disease, how it could impact them and how it could be transmitted. And then, of course, um, there's a getting the healthcare worker story, but yeah, like Masi said, we are very media shy. Then after this one call, I may be like, oh my God, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we should tell more stories and the positive okay. stories as well. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think it would be good to have some positive stories for inspiration. Yeah. yeah. So we are two minutes over time, and with that, I want to wrap up. I want to thank our panelists. Thank you, Michelle, for not being media shy today and for sharing <laughs> a perspective that you get to hear, Marcy, yeah. for sharing us with us how it has been to be there getting the hard facts and translating it to the public. And to James for sharing with us your experience of humanizing this story. Um, I think if I was to summarize, it would be there are stories to be told. There are many stories to be told for the storytellers. And we have given examples. So please go ahead. This is a public forum. <laughs> you are very welcome to go ahead and take on these stories. For the rest of us who may not be storytellers, to remember that there are storytellers out there who are trying really hard to give us both the hard facts and the human story. And also, when you are choosing what to consume, in addition to the facts and all the information that's coming, try and also listen to the human story so you can remember who this is influencing, even though it might not be influencing you. And maybe one thing to do is look for also inspirational stories as a way to get us all through this hard time. For more of these episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast channel on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform of your choice. To stay in touch with us, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WeAreMetaNBO or email us at Nairobi at Meta.co. Until next time, thanks for listening.